Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is the fifth Sunday after Pentecost and the epistle is taken from the first letter of St. Peter. Beloved, be all like-minded in prayer, compassionate, lovers of the brethren, merciful, reserved, humble, not rendering evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but contrarywise blessing. For unto this were you called, that you might inherit a blessing. For, quote, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek after peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the just, and his ears unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you suffer anything for justice's sake, blessed are you. Have no fear of their fear, and do not be troubled, but hallow the Lord Christ in your hearts. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, Unless your justice exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the ancients, Thou shalt not kill, and that whoever shall kill shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be liable to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, Thou fool, shall be liable to the fire of Gehenna. Therefore, if thou art offering thy gift at the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother has anything against thee, leave thy gift before the altar, and go first to be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So far are the words of this day's Holy Gospel. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the just, and his ears unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Words taken from the epistle of today's Holy Mass in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, some years ago, a popular national magazine, before it discontinued publication, featured an article called How the Jews Changed the Thinking of the Catholic Church. It was quite a striking title that was geared, I'm sure, to capture the attention of most everybody who thought at all or had any sense of history. And in the article, it tells how the Jews working through officials in the church brought about a declaration in Vatican Council II that the Jews were to be exonerated from any guilt of the crucifixion of Christ and that there was to be no further persecution of the Jews in any way by Catholics. It's interesting to see that the thinking of the Catholic Church could be changed on such a sensitive issue that was ambiguous in a way because popes had condemned the stubbornness of the Jews and uh, 
their particular way of life in the Christian community, not persecuting them officially, but trying to bring about a sense of forgiveness and mercy. Remembering the words of our Lord from the, uh, from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This had been my attitude as a young child, and I was struck when I first found a Catholic who condemned the Jews for being Christ killers. But our Lord himself had forgiven them, and that we would certainly not attribute any guilt to present-day Jews for that act, although they stubbornly resist any conversion to Christianity or to the Catholic Church in particular. The point being that thinking in the Catholic Church could be changed, and we talked last week about how a group of secret society members in Italy had worked in a conspiracy to change the thinking of the Pope by a long-range plan of indoctrinating the Catholic population and uh, people in general on the democratic principles of masonry, liberty, equality, fraternity. Now, I didn't get a chance to read from the paper that I quoted otherwise from last week at the first mass. And this is how they went about it, to change the thinking of the Catholic Church back in the 1800s. Such teachers that they plan to put into positions uh, in the educational system were to be above suspicion and reproach. Now, they were the conspirators who wanted to take over the office of teaching the Catholic population, particularly seminarians in the seminary. Uh, they needed to be accepted by the virtuous. Therefore, they had to appear virtuous. They were not to condemn, they were not to persecute in any form, but to go along with the thinking of the times as Catholics, but to bring along as a Trojan horse the infiltration of democratic ideas in a time when kings were um, in operation in their kingdoms. Once accepted and trusted, these teachers then could begin to indoctrinate slowly but surely all their pupils according to the new political ideas that needed acceptance for their plan to work. That is, the democratic ideals of the French Revolution. Now most Catholics, or most Americans, do not know history. They're satisfied with making money and having a good time in the present course of events and fighting any immediate threats to liberty, uh, equality, and fraternity because they've already accepted these principles that once were to be at, uh, thought through, changed, and um, made uh, common in the world of their time. So at one time, this was not the case. Um, they were under a, a principle of monarchy, of a king and an aristocracy, and people living at a lower level by different uh, degrees of society. As clerics became priests, and these were the ones who were being indoctrinated in the seminaries and schools, even uh, Catholics in general. But as clerics became priests and priests became bishops, eventually, up the line, one would become Pope, who, although he was not aware of personal, personal ideas out of step with Catholic ideals, 
he would be one surrounded by a climate, as it were, of prepared thinking that fitted him to the long-range pattern um, hoped for by the Italian conspirators. Now remember, these were the Carbonari, they were secret society members, to win Italy over from the Papal States and to make one country out of this divided uh, country, otherwise uh, Papal States and principalities and duchies, and that was disorganized. And so they wanted to put a king in charge and to uh, bring about the democratic principles uh, eventually uh, that uh, were not common to the people at that time. Up the line, one would become Pope Poole, though he was not aware of personal ideas out of step with Catholic ideals, he would be one surrounded by a climate of prepared thinking that fitted him to the long-range pattern hoped for by the Italian conspirators. Now, quote, uh, in order to secure to us a pope in the manner required, it is necessary to fashion for that pope a generation worthy of the reign of which we dream. So they had also indoctrinate the people at large, besides the clerics and the priests and the bishops and so on. All they required was the little finger of the pope. Then those who follow him will think they are marching under the banner of St. Peter, but they will be marching to our ideas and following us. So all we had to do was Trojan horse the ideas into the mind of the Pope, and then he would lead them into these democratic principles uh, and ideas of freedom, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Quote, let the clergy march under your banner in the belief always that they march under the banner of the apostolic keys. You wish to cause the last vestige of tyranny and oppression of Rome to disappear? Lay your nets like Simon Barjona. Lay them in the depths of sacristies, <coughs> seminaries, and convents, rather than in the depths of the sea. And if you will precipitate nothing, you will give yourself a draft of fishes more miraculous than his, that is, of Christ's. How long would this take? Quote, the work which we have undertaken is not the work of a day, nor of a month, nor of a year. It may last many years, a century perhaps, but in our ranks the soldier dies and the fight continues. In other words, this is an ongoing program. And if you follow this, the head of the Alta Vendita, this secret society, says um, you will bring about the collapse of the Catholic Church as such. The tyranny the oppression, the uh, heavy-handedness that is indigenous, that is built into the Catholic way of life will be gone and you'll be free and you'll have a democracy and a progression and an ideal age uh, of a prosperity the likes of which the world hasn't seen until now. So this was their plan of changing the thinking by changing the Pope and those who surrounded him. Now, there are a number of other books that, though they're not easily available, are still able to be gotten, one of which is called Grand Orient Freemasonry Unmasked as the Secret Power Behind Communism by Monsignor George Dillon. It's available today. Another is A Plot Against the Church, also available. And then a book called The Rhine Flows into the Tiber, which is a book on the hidden agenda or the secret, or the, I should say the invisible council 
uh, The Unknown Council, as Father subtitles his book, Father Ralph Wilkin. And in this you get the history of the inside story rather than what was presented uh, through publications and um, camouflage through um, presentations that were very mild. That is, if uh, it all flowed about uh, in a natural course of things. Little do people remember that the first session of the council, after they had spent two or three years preparing for the agenda, the topics to be discussed in Vatican Council II, the council fathers themselves, the northern European bishops, objected to that agenda and had it thrown into the wastebasket. So this was the first act of revolution that initiated the Second Vatican Council. And they started all over again on the floor to assemble an agenda and to put into position not the leaders that had been chosen, but their own leaders voted for. And these were the liberals who then took charge. And for the length of the council uh, were the influences that changed Catholic thinking in a number of points, one of which was the idea of the nature of the Catholic Church. Now, they said that the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, but insinuated that there are other churches, too, that are Christian, that have saving features, and that people can get to heaven in these other churches. And all of this was precipitated by a common goal of ecumenism, which means we want to make the world one Catholic religious community. <coughs> Up until now, people have resisted. We're not gaining any ground. So we've got to change our thinking in order to bring them into the church by talking their language. And in the process of the documents of Vatican Council II, they made rather vague ideas that once had been clear. And as they proceeded to the conclusion of the council, many things had been changed and some were left ambiguous to be changed later when they implemented the council with their particular um, uh, groups of men, these experts, who were to hammer out the details, like on the mass. Now the council did say the mass should be changed to make it more acceptable or more uh, approachable by people in the world, modern people, uh, but not to change the mass essentially but to change its language, to make participation more common, to uh, bring it into the language of the people, but not necessarily as a common, consistent thing, but by way of exception here and there, if bishops thought it proper. Well, they didn't lay out the Mass as such during the Council, but the commissions afterwards then put together the new Masses called the Novus Ordo Masses that at first were rejected by the bishops. They didn't want this. They wanted to keep the old Latin mass translated into the vernacular languages, but not to be changed. Now, one of the ecumenical moves was that Protestants would never accept the Catholic mass as a sacrifice. They say in Protestant theology, Christ has died, and that's all we need. His sacrifice once and for all, and there's no need to continue that sacrifice in the form of the Catholic mass. So they repudiated the Catholic Mass, the Blessed Sacrament, many of the sacraments, because faith alone saves you. Not even baptism is really necessary. If you believe that Christ is your Savior, uh, his merits cover you over. 
and no matter what you do, you're saved. Now that's basic Protestant theology with differences here and there uh, as they disagree among themselves about some of the details, but uh, they don't want the Catholic Mass as a sacrifice. And so what happened with the new Mass when the um, commissions, these liberal theologians, began to put the new Masses together, they totally eliminated the offertory, which in the old Missal that we use is clearly sacrificial in nature and in intent. The holy oblation, the holy sacrifice, was so clearly present in the offertory prayers, as you say them, that they had to bring this out, take this out of the Catholic Mass and substitute them with some simple prayers. The offertory prayers of the Novus Ordo offer a spiritual food and a spiritual drink. Now, what does spiritual mean? I've told you before many times that it's not the spiritual life that we live, but the supernatural life. Because the spiritual life is ambiguous in that it could be a natural spirituality as well as a supernatural spirituality. But supernatural is not natural, therefore, and it's more exact in expressing the idea. So spiritual food and spiritual drink could be bread and wine or um, cake and um, um, grape juice, crackers, something that is a symbol of uh, the memorial of the sacrifice of Christ at the Last Supper or the uh, Last Supper as a meal which they emphasize today. So Protestants have communion services, but they don't have a mass, they don't have a sacrifice, it's a memorial service that you may partake of if you wish or not, uh, but you don't have to be cleansed of any sin because Christ has already cleansed you of sin by your acceptance of his merits on the cross once and for all. So the ecumenical changers, therefore, designed the Mass to become more ambiguous so that even Protestants can take the missalettes that are used in the Novus Ordo and use them in their churches. Lutheran, Episcopalian, Baptist even, I was told. Uh, the missalette that is common in the Catholic Novus Ordo Church uh, is the same things the Protestants use. So they must, therefore, see them not as a sacrifice, but these prayers as a uh, memorial service that they share in common even with Catholics today. So uh, what changed the thinking of the Catholic Church? Who? How? It's not known by most people, but these books will give you an insight if you take the time to get hold of them and to read them carefully. I want to talk today to you then about this movement of what is the church that subsists in the Catholic Church but is larger than the Catholic Church, the Church of Christ. We have the identification of the Catholic Church, and I would like to say this by way of pre uh, preface, that we don't need anything more than we already have to solve our problems. It's just that we have forgotten what we have, we have misunderstood perhaps, uh, and we don't know sometimes how to apply what we have. Because what has substituted for our basic notion that has kept us on the straight and narrow path in spite of popes who morally sometimes in the past were uh, evil and wicked, nevertheless they had a spiritual, uh, a, a doctrinal integrity. They kept the faith, they kept the doctrines in place, but they themselves were not worthy in a moral sense. Today we have those who are worthy in the moral sense but who are not guarding the faith by letting it be changed in the sense that 
They accept the principle of an ongoing revelation. Now, these are the new theologians that have produced a new theology, in quotation marks, that differs from the theology of the past with the idea that, well, the things were true for them in the ancient times, Middle Ages, but we know better today because of evolution, that there was no Adam and Eve, and therefore there, there was no original sin that comes down from a primal pair that the church has already defined. And so they're very bold to upturn, overturn the doctrines that have been clearly already defined in the sense that now we know better today and we can tailor our doctrines according to the new knowledge. So there is ongoing revelation and revelation that teaches us more truly what the Catholic Church is and believes and therefore we can uh, undo the past by substitution or change. Now, uh, according to the marks of the church that has always been taught as the identification clues for finding the true church of Christ for those in the world who may not know, and if they take these four marks or clues, it will lead them inevitably to the one true Holy Roman Catholic Church. Now, in Lesson 51 on page 110, how do we know that uh, which is the one true church established by Christ? First of all, we know he did establish a church. Thou art Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Not churches, my church, my church. Other sheep, he said, I have that are not of this flock. Them too I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. Not the voices of theologians, not the voices of leaders, ecclesiastical leaders, my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now this is true ecumenism. This is the true pattern of missionary work, to go into the whole world, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you. So this doctrine that Christ taught has been preserved untouched through the centuries until our time within the church. Outside of the church, those who taught differently were called heretics and they were thrown out. Today, modernism finds them staying inside the church, as Pope Pius X um, exclaimed. They will not leave. They want to stay inside and change the church. And he condemned this. And he forbade it and he took steps to prevent it from continuing on by the Index of Forbidden Books, by the uh, censor. Uh, this book is permitted to be uh, printed because it contains nothing against faith and morals. So we call that the imprimatur. We look for the nihil obstat, that is, nothing stands against the pr printing of this book, and therefore distribution among Catholics. So there was a censorship over uh, doctrinal books to see that they were not contaminated by modernism. But that did not stop modernism. The overwhelming power of philosophical thought and scientific endeavor overwhelmed this power of the Pope and continued to promote this modernistic idea abetted by democracy uh, and uh, the Masonic principles, liberty, equality, fraternity. So we see that in history there's been a groundswell that preceded us by centuries and has overwhelmed us today in that it is reached into the Catholic Church like a tide that flowed through the doors and into the interior of the church to change the thinking of the Catholic Church with the idea that there is an ongoing revelation and therefore we have a right to change these doctrines since we know better now than they did in the Middle Ages, what the true church's teachings were or are. How do we know 
which is the one true church established by Christ. We know which is the one true church established by Christ by the marks provided by him to recognize his church. He knew what would happen down the road, that it would be attacks from inside as well as outside, and to identify what was the true church in the midst of ambiguity or confusion. We know which is the one true church established by Christ by the marks of the true church. These are important. By the marks of the church, we mean certain clear signs by which all men can recognize it as the true church founded by Jesus Christ. Now, we're at the mercy of our teachers. And if they're wrong, we'll be taught wrongly and we'll believe wrongly. And everything can be ambiguous. Everything contains the potential for good and for evil at the same time within itself. So even doctrines can be heretical doctrines, but they're still doctrines, <clears throat> they're still teachings, but wrong teachings. Now how do we know which are the right teachings as opposed to the wrong ones? A mark is a sign by which something may be distinguished from all others of the same kinds by um, its marks we can recognize the true church as the one founded by Jesus Christ, distinguishing it from all other churches, however similar founded by men who had no authority from God to found a church. Now, because of democracy, we have a right to establish our own religion. Well, that's man's laws, not God's. And we find that the contention has always been between God and man, who's supreme. And during the French Revolution, in the Enlightenment, as it was called, man became the measure of all things and man became the measure by which all things were to be determined in every way human. We call this humanism, rationalism, secularism, all these things that the church has condemned, which you may not understand what the words mean, but these are the results that it's man against God. And um, when life becomes man-centered, then it's just... Detached from God-centeredness. Our true religion is God-centered. Ecumenism is a danger that leads to man-centeredness. That's false ecumenism. But true ecumenism is God-centered and leads men to God and not to man as man or humankind. One world government, one world religion as opposed to the work of God and the work of Christ to bring men out of this fallen condition in union with Christ, in the mystical body of Christ, the one true church, in other words, that brings us to the divinity of God. Man's going to come to a divinity of humanism. Man becomes God. We see how it turns around so easily, and yet so powerfully. And this is the contest that we're engaged in. We talked about war being the art of deception, and this is the deception. Religion of man instead of religion of God, and man has a right to establish that. They have no authority to make a religion since Christ has already come and established once and for all a new and final covenant in his blood. It is important that we know which is the church established by Christ in order that we may obey it as God commands. Then shall we also be certain uh, what to believe and to do in order to be saved in order to know our intelligence and to do by our will the things that we, under faith, hope, and charity, uh, do to gain heaven. 
we must distinguish the true church from other churches because they are imitations of the church founded by Christ. You know, Protestantism was the first successful breakaway that still maintains itself today, though splintered in many different uh, denominations. Uh, it's, a, a sub, uh, it's a strategy of Satan to divide and conquer. You can't destroy the Catholic Church directly, but you can split it up. And then you whittle away at the edges, and then little by little the center begins to crumble. The true church must be that which Christ personally founded and the apostles propagated. It must have existed continuously since the time of Christ. Mormons say, no, it fell apart and therefore was reestablished in the time of Joseph Smith in the latter days of the saints, latter day saints, Mormons. It must teach in their entirety, this is important, all the doctrines commanded by the divine founder while he was still on earth and all its members must prof profess these fundamental doctrines. Now we're beginning to uh, distinguish between the men and the boys. The true church must be a visible organization, discernible and discoverable, evidently existing with clear marks or signs distinguishing it as the church of Christ. Our Lord before his ascension made the necessary provision so that all men might from thenceforth recognize the church which he established and which he commanded all to join. There are those who say he never established a church and therefore it's sort of a moral union of people who decide that they're going to follow Christ in some form or basic uh, doctrinal form uh, that is very hard to assemble or distinguish but uh, that there was no visible society. Now the chief marks of the church are four. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. One, Christ intended his church to be one. Therefore the true church must be one. Its members must be united in doctrine, in worship, and in government. Christ says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. We see division in the Catholic church today between its offices of authority against doctrine, the prophetic office, to teach, to teach the continuous doctrines, not to tailor them or change them or to fit them to the modern mind in a false ecumenism that changes everything then accordingly. There shall be one fold, one shepherd. Holy Father, keep in, keep in thy name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And that unity of the Trinity through Christ unites us to the same basic unity of a heavenly Trinity. One. Holy. Christ intended his church to be holy. Therefore, the true church must be holy. It must teach a holy doctrine in faith and morals because its founder is holy. It must provide the means for its members to lead a holy life. Proper doctrine of sanctification and the means to bring about the sanctification with God's help through the Mass and the sacraments and our cooperation with our intelligence guided by faith to practice in charity the works of God, the virtues of God. So it's a holy church. doesn't mean everybody's holy in the church because he said not everyone will be saved. And the church contains both good and evil. 
But at the reckoning, the final day, will come the separation of the goats from the sheep. And those who are worthy will be taken into heaven. Those who are unworthy will be excluded. Uh, these are the rules of the game. And God has made it clear to us. Christ prayed for his apostles. Quote, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So we're promoting the truth of God, not the truth of men. Even as thou hast sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for them I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. One with Christ, we share the same office of Christ, and the obligation is to live the same life of Christ in holiness and goodness. He also says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. By their fruits you will know them. Do men gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not how they appear, but by the results. Christ promised his church the gift of miracles, a sign of holiness. Amen, amen, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he also shall do. And greater than these shall he do, by the promise. One holy Catholic. What does that word Catholic mean? Christ intended his church to be universal for everybody. Now here's where ecumen ecumenism overlaps the word Catholic with a capital C and a small c. Catholic and a universal, every man regardless of belief, is a member of Christ's church. And the Holy Father himself, John Paul II, said, uh, by the birth of Christ, as it were, all men are saved. That's not true. But he says, as it were. So we don't know exactly what he means, and therefore we have to hold back. But we know it's by the death of Christ that we are saved and then by our faith in living the practice of the life of Christ through baptism are we to persevere to the end of our lives to enter heaven. The word Catholic means universal that it must be for all peoples of every nation and for all times and teach the same faith everywhere. Now words are ambiguous. We call them equivocal. Uh, they could have different meanings. So when we say it's universal Therefore, everybody is a member of the Catholic Church? No. Other sheep I have, them too I must bring, and then there shall be one flock. But until then, they are not of the flock. But everyone is able to enter the church, regardless of nationality, culture, background, as long as they accept the truths and live according to the teachings of the church. Christ commanded his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. You shall be witnesses for me even to the very ends of the earth. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations. And then will come the end of this time period of invitation. Finally, apostolic. Very important because no one even claims this one. Christ intended his church to be propagated by his apostles and therefore the True church must be apostolic. Go back to the apostles, apostolic um, succession. It must be the church propagated by the apostles. Its rulers must derive their office and authority by lawful succession from the apostles. Judas committed suicide. His place was taken by Matthias, chosen to fill the place 
of the apostles. So we see even in the Acts of the Apostles this principle being uh, exercised. The next sentence, very important. It must hold intact the doctrine and traditions of the apostles to whom Christ gave authority to teach. It must. If it deviates, then it's not Catholic. It's anything but Catholic in the true Catholic sense of capital C. It was Christ himself and no one else who chose his apostles and disciples and commanded them to teach his doctrine to all the world. To Simon he said, And I say to thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Didn't say they wouldn't attack it. Didn't say it wouldn't um, um, engage in warfare and sometimes to the devastation of Catholics who fall, lose their faith, or lose their way in practicing virtue. St. Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel to other than that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema. So no change. No change in doctrine. And even if I were to come again and change the doctrine, don't believe me, or an angel from heaven, like Moroni uh, in the Mormon religion, revealed the golden plates and so on. No. Let him be anathema. Cut off. Not true Catholic. St. Paul himself refers to the church as built upon the foundation of the apostles in the letter to the Ephesians. We prove the only true church of Christ is the Catholic church because, quote, first, only the Catholic church possesses the marks of the church established by Christ. That is, unity, holiness, Catholicity, and apostolicity. We'll go into these individually a little bit later. As a matter of fact, only the Catholic church claims to have all these four marks of the true church, the marks so evidently set by Christ. Just a little reasoning and a, uh, a reading of the Gospels can bring these four qualities out and uh, say, here it is in the Gospels and must remain so to our own times. Only the Catholic Church throughout its history gives evidence of miraculous strength, permanence, and unchangeableness in its doctrine thus showing the world that it is under the special protection of God. Will the devil try to counterfeit these things? Yes, indeed. I've read books on the stigmata, how people can have the marks of Christ without even being holy or baptized because it's a mental condition that is so strong it can produce these marks apart from the sanctification by God's work in, in a miraculous way. So we have the true and false stigmata, marks of Christ's passion. Only the Catholic Church has proved itself indestructible for almost 2,000 years against every variety and number of formidable en enemies. Go back and study it. They had a heresy of Arianism lasted for uh, over 400 years. And yet, we don't have Arianism at large today anymore. We are under the greatest attack, however, today of all forces. Remember, modernism was defined by St. Pius X, Pope Pius X, as the synthesis of all heresies. Everything that had been heretical up until now is embodied in modernism. And that has entered into the church today. Only the Catholic Church suffered from persecution and outside attacks and from schism and heresy within its ranks, yet still lives after 2,000 years. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to uh, overcome all these things eventually. They, like disease, leave their ravages in the body of Christ. And Christ said, when I come again, do you think that there will be faith on the earth? There will be a remnant. 
But the church will still exist in this remnant. I will be with you to the end of time. But what will the condition of the church be? It'll be the crucified Christ on the cross from which he rose after his death never more to suffer. And after the death of the church on earth will come the resurrection and the final judgment never again to suffer with all the glory that those who have earned will have for eternity apart from those who will be cast out once and for all. So these, these are the rules of the game and these are the issues that we face in the practice and the salvation and the salvaging of our faith and the living of it. Only the Catholic Church has proved itself an exception to the laws of decay and death. It has watched the birth and decay of every government on earth for almost 2,000 years. In spite of corruption and persecutions, in spite of the combined forces of error and evil, after every attack, the Catholic Church rises as the Bride of Christ ever fresh and fair. So there's always hope. And it is we who have to will maintain that Catholic faith and its practice to the sanctification of our souls and the glory that Christ will give us. Who, as St. Paul says, uh, do not be afraid of their fear. And even if you are, and even if you are, you suffer anything for justice's sake, blessed are you. So have no fear, their fear, and do not be troubled, but hallow the Lord Christ in your hearts. And that is why we study our faith so that we can practice it and truly hallow Christ in our hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.